Someday I'll learn. Someday I'll learn. I want to do a couple things first. A uh, couple announcements. So, for the Hapgood family, um, remember, we're sending out emails on a regular basis. So, if you don't have the email and you want to be on the list, please let Brad know. Um, there is a meal train that's set up and the link is online in the email. So, if you'd like to do that, um, please, please do. Um, I know that there was some family members in town, so I think they were going to wait on any visiting that might take place to give the family some time together, some of Kathy's sisters. Um, and also, um, we're just basically letting Bob know that he kind of has an indefinite sabbatical for now. We want him just to concentrate completely and entirely on his family. Um, and so, we just want him to be able to spend as much time as he can and do all that he needs to do to really be able to be present there and just focus there. And so, we've talked to him about that um, and wanted you guys to know as well. A um, couple other needs I wanted to mention. That w- uh, DJ, yeah. Part of that, just reminding everyone that if you were normally calling Bob with things that come up, please call one of us. Oh, yeah. Yep. We'll let you know when Bob is coming back and available. Reach out to one of the other pastors if you have a church over your family. Yes. So the point is, is we again, we want him to concentrate on his family alone right now. So needs that come up, please let me know, Alan know, Brad know, Ted know, anybody else. But let's just kind of give him time to focus on what he needs to focus on. Um, Jackie, um, I know, has had a lot of pain lately, so I wanted to spend some time praying for her. Teresa, um, too, um, had some vertigo yesterday and there was some concern. She was at the hospital um, she's not there now, but they're waiting for some different tests back, so we want to be praying for her and for the Abishan family. Um, and so I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to read the scripture, and then we will let the kids go to Children's Church. All right, let's pray. Father, we again, we just recognize that you are the God who hears our prayers. Um, you are a prayer-hearing God. We can call to you at any time in big things, little things, when we're in distress, when we are sad, when we are facing the worst of the worst, when we're just facing the regular, ordinary stuff of, of the day, that we can call to you and that you hear us and you do because of Jesus. And we just recognize that. We thank you for that, for the access that we have um, on the basis of the work of your Son. And so we just come before you. You have heard all these needs. You've heard every need in every person's heart right now. Um, The things that nobody knows about, you know about. Um, And so would you just bring peace? Would you bring help to all the various needs that are in each one here? We specifically just ask for the physical needs here of Jackie, of Teresa. Um, I just pray for Jackie's pain, that it would go down and that you would help her today, even right now. Um, For Teresa, all that's going on in her body, some of the concerns, um, the <laughs> patients are not always so patient about waiting for tests, um, that you would just um, help those to move along quickly um, and that all of the Abishans would be able to really hear and understand what is going on and help and encourage their family even now. I just think of Kay, who hasn't been here for some time. I know I just asked again, just thinking of physical needs, that you would help her. And there's many here that have them. We are embodied people. 
um, and we just need your we need your help. Um, and God, we also need heart work. Uh, all of us need work on our hearts to come under the authority of your word, um, to trust you, to cast ourselves upon you, um, to do what you call us to do. And would you help us by your Holy Spirit, even as we go through um, a difficult, challenging, hard saying of Jesus today, would you open up our eyes and would you help us um, to see Jesus for all that he is and help us to uh, walk and follow him no matter what the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so now let's stand. How about that? Up and down, up and down, up and down. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. It's God's Word. Amen. You can sit down, children. You can run or preferably walk to children's church. It's a water day. Well, last week uh, I mentioned that we should read the Bible like we do a fictional story. If you remember that, if you weren't here, that's okay. I'll revisit it. Read the Bible like a novel, not because it is fake, not because it's a legend, but because the good news of Jesus comes in the wider context of a story. Bible-believing Christians can forget this. We all can forget this. We get accustomed to propositions, to things like statements of faith, statements of belief, and we can neglect the storiness of Scriptures. When you read a good book or you watch a good movie, you see how every character in detail is meant to move the plot forward into a climax. Sometimes you even get a twist at the end that you weren't expecting. But if you rewatch it again, you see how the twist was foreshadowed 
throughout the whole story. And so this is how the good news of King Jesus comes to us. It's about a king and a kingdom. Not in a magical, mythical land in a galaxy far, far, far away, but about this land, this earth. About a kingdom being established here and that a prophesied king was going to come and rescue his people from the great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And this rescue comes with a bit of a twist in a way that the people of Israel that were awaiting a Messiah weren't expecting. In fact, it was so unexpected that the experts, the experts of the story of Israel thought it was blasphemy. And the people of Israel and the disciples around Jesus Himself found it incomprehensible. And so when it really gets down to it, we do too. The good news of Jesus at first glance appears more offensive than it appears good. The message of the kingdom, the way the king exercises his rule and reign, comes in conflict with their and our understanding of power, achievement, fulfillment, victory. Jesus' message, Jesus' mission is one of suffering and self-denial that marches toward public humiliation, weakness, and the shame of the cross. And so we've been in Mark's Gospel That's what we're doing for these kind of four weeks leading up to Easter. I say three weeks leading up to Easter being the fourth week. And one commentator divided up Mark's gospel in three acts. So there was act one, and that's kind of where we went last week. There were the signs of the kingdom. We talked last week about how Jesus is the conquering king, how he's defeated Satan. He has forgiven sin. He has defeated death. And so act one is focused on that. And then in Act 2 starts around chapter 8, verse 22, leading up to Jerusalem. Kind of Jesus moving toward Jerusalem because of what happens there when the passion, the suffering of the Christ begins. So we are going to be kind of focused on Act 2 of this story. And we find that Jesus, as He moves toward Jerusalem, He reveals in more unexpected and offensive detail the nature of who He really is and what His mission is. So, we're going to be in Mark 8 and we're going to bounce around a bit. Mark 8, 22. We're just going to kind of walk through it. Probably going to go to chapter 9, verse 13. So, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. So this first section here 
is more like a parable. So did it really happen? Yes. They are reporting what it really happened. There's the details there. He goes into the city. People are bringing to him a blind man. But this healing is more about how deep human blindness can be than it is about Jesus' power. And so you can't rip stories out of their context. We can't just grab this section of verses right here and then try to make a theology of healing. Or, well, you try one time and then you try again. Well, Jesus tried and He couldn't really do it the first time. So then He had to try again the second time. We have to look at the whole context. And what we find is that Jesus isn't a failed healer, but He's like a prophet enacting a parable. He is showing that this blind man is completely blind and this would have been a disease that would have been very hard to heal. They would have thought this is one of the bad ones. This man cannot see and they bring him to Jesus and Jesus spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him and says, do you see anything? And what happens? He kind of has a partial healing. A partial healing. And then Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again. He opens his eyes. His sight was restored. He sees everything clearly. So his eyes are completely opened. Sight completely restored. Sees everything clearly. But what we find as we go further that this is illustrating something. That this is showing that human blindness goes even deeper. That they mistake who Jesus is and what he is really doing. And prophets would do this sometimes in the Old Testament. Again, I want to continually show you as we go through this, that first Corinthian scripture that we first read. According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, the gospel is a story, a fulfillment of what was prophesied all before. That the whole book is telling a story and it's moving toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, we have in the next section, Peter. And we see that Peter just partially gets it. Peter just partially gets who Jesus is. And so in 8.27, And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist. And the others say, Elijah. And the other's one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So we have in this part that Peter gets it right. But in the section before, we have a parable of only partial sight. In Isaiah, if you remember, Isaiah Chapter 20, he gave a parable, an unusual one. And he did it with his action. We see prophets do this. Isaiah 20, verses 2 to 6. Let's start with verse 1. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. At the time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, 
So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So, for a long time, God has Isaiah do something very unusual, unexpected, to show them what they are like and what was going to happen. And that's similar to what Jesus is doing there with illustrating human blindness and the fact that even though Peter kind of gets it right, as we go on to see here soon, he does not get the whole story at all. He only partially sees. So we have the fact that Peter sees Jesus as Messiah. He names him, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Anointed, anointing oil, smearing. You are the anointed one. You are endowed with the Holy Spirit. You're doing what what the Christ was supposed to do. You're opening the eyes of the blind. You are releasing captives. He gets a piece of it right. But his understanding of what that means is more like a blind man seeing trees shaped instead of people because of what happens in the next set of verses. And this is where Jesus plainly identifies who He is and what He will do. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so remember, like I've been saying, the whole story matters. Jesus' use of the term Son of Man throughout this whole section, it happens here and then He goes on to use it more, is a section from Daniel. It would have made Peter think of a specific passage. Daniel 7. It would have made him think of what Messiahs are supposed to do. What the Son of Man is supposed to do. Again, go back to that prophetic book of Daniel in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 11 to 14. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days 
and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so it's kind of like Peter kind of takes Jesus to the side, gives Him a good sharp rebuke, and kind of says, come on Jesus, don't you read your Bible? Haven't you read Daniel 7? What in the world are you talking about? That's not the kind of thing that Messiah kings do. They take dominion. They conquer the nations. The one we're waiting for is going to remove Rome, is going to restore Israel. And so this expectation was common then. There's, there's a lot of questions about exactly what were they thinking. We always have to be careful when we try to read everything into it. Um, and there were a lot of different messianic movements back then when you look at the first century and the second century and right before then of what the people of Israel are waiting for. But again, I keep emphasizing, Rome is ruling. And they are waiting for a Messiah to come. I think one thing that helps us kind of understand what is going on there, and remember, that's always what we must do. Before we start to apply Scriptures to anything in our life, we need to really understand understand what is happening in the original context. What is going on? What are they hearing? What are they doing? And then make practical application. N.T. Wright, in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, talks about these different messianic movements and some of the things that they might have been thinking at this time that I think gives us some insight to what's going on. If these disparate movements had anything in common, it was the expectation forming the context for whatever messianic figure might emerge that Israel's long history would at last reach its divinely ordained goal. The long night of exile, the present evil age would give way to the dawn of renewal and restoration. The new exodus, the return from exile, the age to come where royal hopes were cherished. It was within this setting the king that would come would be the agent through whom Yahweh would accomplish this great renewal. The king was the focal point of the dream of national liberty. The king was to be the one who would fight Israel's battles. David had defeated Goliath and the Philistines. The sign that he was going to be king was already clear when the women sang that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. His true successor, according to the biblical Psalms, would attain his lordship by defeating Israel's enemies. He goes on to say, a Messiah who was executed by the occupying forces was not, after all, the true Messiah. That's not what messiahs do. They do not get executed by the ruling authority of the day. That's not what the hopes of Israel are waiting for. And they would look and they would read and they would read passages like that and kind of go, whoa, this is not right. That's not the right way to go. There's a, there's a different way to go about this. That's like opposite. That's a reversal of what we were expecting. So they're expecting the Son of Man to deliver them, to take dominion and authority, not to suffer and die. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, and I thought that was interesting. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. So he looks, he sees everybody's there, and he publicly rebukes them, rebukes him. Now, who knows? Maybe this would have done differently if it would have been just been him, Peter, on a walk. He, again, he might have done the exact same thing. But it's like everybody is listening, everybody is hearing, and you're expecting it not to go this way. And, and he is like, that is satanic. That is satanic. To deny a suffering, saving king is satanic. It is completely adversarial to the mission of Jesus. Satan means adversary. And so everything about what he is doing is knocking Jesus off his mission. Jesus speaks plainly to them. He says, this is what's going to happen. But they still don't get it. Peter rebukes him. Jesus rebukes Peter. Why is all this happening? Was that, well, you got part of it right. You're like a blind man. You see the trees. You kind of, yep, you're the Messiah. Good job, Peter. But you don't really get what the Messiah is actually going to do. Bad job. Satanic insight. False. And so again, like we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians, we see that the divine perspective, the divine way of doing things is radically different than the human way of doing things. It is considered foolishness. Ridiculous. It does not make sense. Now, you could say, well, wait a second, I thought you said that this is like a story, it's kind of like a movie, there's foreshadowing, so they didn't really get this. Were there any other hints in the Bible about this king? And there's like things in numbers, there's going to be a ruler, there's like a star, scepters, all this different prophetic imagery. Think about Christmas time, unto us a child is born, the government's going to be on his shoulders, all these things that they're thinking and expecting. But there's also hints about the way in which this is going to be achieved is different. And that also happens in the biblical story. It even happens in Daniel. Think about the book of Daniel. What happened with Daniel? He went into a lion's den. What happens in lion's dens? You get ripped to shreds. You die. Daniel enters the den of lions. The king is upset. The king runs to the tomb expecting him to be dead. Daniel cries out, kind of like he's lifted out of the tomb, like rising again. And there's this imagery of, hey, the, the faithful one suffers. The faithful one goes in the den and dies. But he doesn't. Well, he, well Jesus dies. Not in that story, Daniel didn't actually die. He rose again. But it's a hint. It's a foreshadow of this is the way things are going to happen in the future. Same with Isaiah 53. Most of us, if you've been in church any time, know that's a popular Old Testament passage. We need to read the whole thing. We need to know the whole thing. But certain ones kind of get highlighted. And Isaiah 53 is one. What do you have? You have the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Let's just look at that briefly so we can remind ourselves of the story. So we can see the foreshadowing. Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You think about Psalm 22. Another one. Psalm 22. I know Bob has done this one several times through the years. Does any of this sound familiar? Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Go down to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then, of course, Psalm 22 goes on giving all this imagery of the future cross. So, there are foreshadows. There are hints that show, yes, there's going to be a king. Yes, he's going to take dominion. Yes, he's going to defeat your enemies. Yes, he's going to bring renewal and restoration, but the way He does it is going to be quite unexpected. Incomprehensible. To some, blasphemy. And so, Jesus rebukes him. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, so pause for a second. So he's kind of talking to the disciples. There is just Peter and then he looks around. There's a bunch of other disciples. Hey, gives the rebuke. Now he calls that there's a whole crowd. Calls all the crowd to him. Everybody. Everybody listen to this. Not just the disciples. Not just kind of Peter. And you know, you get those certain guys that kind of get to go in and do the special stuff and Peter's one of them. So not just those. Not just the twelve. The whole crowd. Everybody listen to what I'm about to say. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What a sentence. What a call. The call to everyone. So what's the word? Anyone. I got everybody in front of me. Anyone. Everyone. All of you. If any of you want to follow me, this is what you have to do. Take up your cross. And follow me. One translation of the Net Bible points out that it probably shouldn't say let him deny himself like it does in the ESV. That, it, that the words that he's using is more forceful. It's a forceful command. It's must deny. Not so much like let him deny. Like kind of let permissive. Let him do that. No, must must deny himself. That it's an imperative. It's a command. And so it's supposed to land on us in that way. And then we have this imagery of taking up his cross. Taking up his cross.
One commentator put that like this. The cross was an instrument of violent and painful execution. To take the cross was to carry the horizontal beam of the cross out to the site of execution, generally past a jeering mob. In rhetorically strong terms, Jesus describes what all true disciples must be ready for. If they follow him, they must be ready to face literal scorn and death, for they must follow to the cross. So not just that you might be executed, you're going to carry that cross on your back up to the place of execution. So this is public shaming. Public shaming. Humiliation past a jeering mob. And Jesus is saying, hey, you want to follow me? Guess what you got to do? You got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross. All that imagery would be foolishness to them. That's not what messiahs do. That's not what we're in this for. We want the kingdom now. We want Rome out of here. And he's calling them to that kind of life. Verse 35 to 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So here you'll notice, if you have an ESV, there's a little footnote by life. You look very down at the bottom. The same Greek word can mean either soul or life, depending on the context. Twice in this verse and once in verse 36 and once in verse 37. So it's the same word. Soul and life. It's life. It's the same thing. We've got to be careful with that word soul. Sometimes we think weird things. The soul is not the animated sparkling star beam underneath your skin that shoots to the sky when you die. Okay? That's not what the soul is. Sometimes we have the sense of it's, of it's immaterial. It's kind of this magic stuff that we have. The word here is for all of human life. Here's another scholar. Some English translations unfortunately obscure this by translating the Greek psyche as life in verse 35, but soul in verse 36 to 37. In Hebraic thought, the soul is the life. Hence, what is referred to is not the immaterial portion of one's being. Rather, it includes all that is human. All that the world can offer is not worth life itself. So if a person gains the whole world and loses his true life, he's not made a profit but a loss. And if he discovers he has made a big mistake by engaging in that transaction, there's no way back for him. As what he has gained is of a lower value than what he has lost. He has irretrievably lost himself. So this is everything. It is life. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life. And so we have to think about that Jesus is calling for everything. Absolutely all of us. Not just kind of the immaterial soul disconnected from who you are as a person and your emotions and your mind and your body. He's saying the whole thing. All of it. Everything that we are. All of our life. So Jesus is not an accessory. 
He's not an accessory. He's not the purse that really makes out the outfit of our life. That it really makes it pop. That's not what Jesus is. He's not an accessory. He's to be the entire thing. All of it. He's to be the controlling center. And we just can't get over this cross-bearing, self-denying call. I can't think of much more antithetical thing to say to an American. To us. Deny yourself. That's the call. That's what Jesus said. Certain parts of Jesus we can just kind of run to. This one, yeah. Not so much. But this is at the very center of who He is and what He was to do. And this is at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That He's to be King. That He's King over our whole life. He's King over the whole world, the whole earth. Everything is about Him. He is King. There should be no other rivals. That we may in fact face social humiliation. And so he's literally saying that. Because sometimes in our culture, we live in America, freedom of religion, all that kind of stuff. We've got to remember that in a lot of places, following Jesus is potentially and in actuality literally giving up your life. And so we can't just move to the metaphor here and to just kind of the daily stuff first. We really got to let that sit. And I think when this was written too, one person was talking about how this was around like Nero's reign when this would have come out. Persecution was real. So this would have also been encouraging. Oh, that's right. Jesus said this to us. I can endure persecution. I can make it through because He's life. He's everything. This is what He called us to do. And so we do need to know that that's what it is saying. Your life is the call. But also, it's living life as dead to other things controlling our lives. So again, we live in a world that exalts the self, desires, all that. You don't tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. All my desires are are mine. I self-rule. And Jesus is like, no, I'm king. You're not. You cannot follow me and have that attitude continually. That is not Christianity. He says that salvation comes through self-denial, not self Fulfillment. And so if we clutch at the things in our lives and try to make them king, they will disappoint. But if we clutch Christ as our life, He will never disappoint. Ever. I thought there was one good picture of this. It wasn't um, about cross-bearing, so to speak, but I think it's a helpful picture. Some of us kind of go, wait a second, well, I'm probably not, could happen. But I probably won't go to work tomorrow and potentially face execution because I believe in Jesus. Okay? That's the call to be prepared for that. But, so with these kind of verses like, so now we, I got to go coach a basketball game pretty soon. And you got to go do whatever you're going to do. Maybe you're going to eat some lunch, take a nap, do whatever you're doing, just the ordinary way of life. So ordinary every day, this is still the call. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow 
Jesus. So how do we, how do we do that? And I think that this was helpful. Let me take the edge off by giving you an illustration of what death as a way of living might be like. The temptation, of course, is to imagine it as a doing of nothing at all, a profound quietism, a deadly, boring wait for death itself, finally to turn up and end the nag. To help you get around that view, I want you to hold out your right hand. Hey, let's do that. Let's, let's get charismatic in here. Hold out your right hand, palm up, and imagine that someone is placing one after another all sorts of good gifts in it. Oh, good job, Janet. Let's, let's move in there. Make the good things whatever you like. M&M's, weekends in Acapulco, winning the lottery, falling in love, having perfect children, being wise, talented, good-looking, and humble. Besides, anything. We don't have to keep holding out our hand. That's okay. You guys, you guys can if you want. But now consider, there are two ways your hand can respond to those goods. It can respond to them as a live hand. Try to clutch it to hold on to the single good that is in it at any given moment, thus closing itself to all other possible goods. Or it can respond as a dead hand, in which case it will simply lie there, perpetually open to all the goods and the comings and the goings of their dance. When I talk about being dead accordingly, I have in mind not the absence of interest in the dance of living, but the absence of clutching at our partners in the dance. Not not dancing, if you will, but not trying to stop the dance. In a way, that's nothing more than gurus and spiritual advisors the world over have been saying for millennia. But it also, I think, quite specifically, the way the gospel invites us to live. Jesus obviously was not without an interest in his life. His reputation as a glutton and a wine-bibber was not gained by sitting at home, eating tofu, and drinking herb tea. But equally obviously, Jesus did not count his life, either human or divine, a thing to be grasped at. He was open at all times to what God put into his hand. And he remained faithful in that openness until death, at which point God, by the power of the resurrection, put the whole world in his hand. Think dead hand. Then, it is the only way here or hereafter that life can safely be enjoyed. So I thought that that was helpful. Yes, we have all times of blessings. Yes, all times of good gifts. That doesn't mean just... Just ignore it all. Just be morose about it all. But it does mean don't grab it and clutch it because they can become gods. They can become rulers that are false. We're dead hands. We enjoy them. We love them. But that's not life. That's not the king. Jesus is king. So I think we do need to understand that there's a few things that self-denying is not. And I've done this kind of thing before. So it's not subordinate Cindy. Okay? It's not subordinate Cindy. Sometimes you can just have a view that, well, we're just gonna, we just submit to every kind of bad thing that happens. We can put ourselves in really bad situations, just kind of keep going with it. We're followers of Jesus. Nope. Sometimes you can actually work for justice. You can get out of really bad, violent, abusive situations. So it's not just saying deny yourself in a way that's just saying, well, I'm just gonna take a beating all the time. That's not what he's saying. It's also not self-pitying Sam. We've talked about him before. Just the guy that just kind of just beats himself all the time up about his sin, morose, sad, passive-aggressive, all of that kind of stuff. That like, oh, you bear my cross. I got to go to work. I got to do this. Got to do that. Got to repent of my sin. 
That is not cross-bearing. We use that, you know, that we just bear our cross. It's our cross to bear. That's not at all what it's talking about. That's like the opposite. Remember what the image of the cross is. It is not that. That's a lie. It's not ascetic Aaron. It's not ascetic Aaron. Just, well, therefore, I'm just going to deny everything good, like, like the joke about tofu and all that. I'm just going to ignore all the good stuff of life because real spirituality will cut off all the good things in life and not enjoy them and just be a big bummer to everybody and a party pooper. That is, that is not also what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to recognize that He is King. He is calling us to recognize that at times, suffering in the form of persecution, different things may come. It may come. We might even lose our life. That'll show who our King is. But it's also not saying just to walk through life beat up all the time. No. We can walk through life knowing we got the King and He's the conqueror. And He's defeated all of our great enemies. So, yes, we can enjoy life. And yes, we can deny self and self-rule because He's King. So, verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of Me and of My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So, what does he focus on? He focuses on, hey, the Son of Man again, one day is coming. He's coming in glory with the holy angels. So, glory is coming. But if you are ashamed of me now, if you are ashamed of the things that I am saying, I'm going to be ashamed of you in the future. I'm also the judge. The way of salvation is through me. The one you're going to face on judgment day is me. And I'm the Savior. And I'm leading the way to the cross to die for sinners, to defeat all those great enemies. So don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the things I say now. Think about the future. Base your life on the culture of the future kingdom. The values of the future kingdom. Do that now. Do not base your life on the culture of the kingdoms of this world now, on the values of the kingdoms of this world now. If you're ashamed of me, if you're ashamed of, the thi- of me and the things that I say now, I'm going to be ashamed of you then. Another challenging set of words. And we just can't help but see it. So again, he's using shame here. Why so much emphasis on shame? Again, this is public humiliation. That's what a cross is. But he's saying, hey, what's that psalm? You know, the ones who look at me will not be ashamed. They have radiant faces. The ones who look at Jesus, who hold on to him as king, will not be ashamed in the future. They will inherit glory. They will, they will, will, they will see the restoring of all that is good, the puttings to rights of the whole world. And so why this emphasis on words? And we're not going to spend much time here in in Mark 9, but, but we have this picture of the transfiguration. And I'm going to read that. 
And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's a ton of questions about that verse. That's like a different sermon. Um, Some people think it's actually this transfiguration. Could be other things as well. But we're not going to linger there. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that at first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does not come first to restore all things. Excuse me. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So why this emphasis on, again, his person and his words? If you deny me, if you deny my words. Well, again, we go back to the story. We go back to the whole book. There are two big figures, Elijah and Moses. And some even thought Elijah was coming back again. So there's like an expectation that maybe Elijah's going to show up again. Well, Jesus says later, yeah, and that was actually John the Baptist. And what they do to him, they killed him. John the Baptist died. He was the forerunner. But so there's this hope. Oh, hey, Moses, Elijah, Moses, the, the giver of the word of God, the one who climbs the mountain and hears the voice of God and is given the commandments. The one who also made a promise in Deuteronomy 18.15 and spoke of somebody else coming. Again, the whole story. The whole story. Deuteronomy 18.15 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. Wait, what did the voice in the cloud just say? Elijah and Moses, what happens on the mountain? Again, all this just echoing Everything in Israel's story. Divine presence. God revealing Himself. Climb a mountain. Moses and Elijah show up. And God shows up. His voice speaks. They all disappear. Those two disappear and there's Jesus. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the voice of God. Jesus is the one who will restore all things. The voice says, like I said in Deuteronomy, you're supposed to listen to this prophet. What did the voice say? Listen to him. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. His words. His way. Who he is. The whole scene is soaked in the Old Testament story because Jesus is the center of the story. He is the culmination point. And that, it happens with a twist. And Peter's happy with tents and shelters for everybody. This transfiguration thing is kind of cool. He's not so happy about what he's heard six days or whatever before then. 
And so, we too need to remember the story. And we too need to remember that Jesus is the center and Jesus is King. And we too need to follow Him wherever and however He calls. Follow Him like a King. He has the authority in our lives. Does He have the authority in yours? What are you ruled by? What are your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions? All of that, does it accord with, does it look like King Jesus? Have we bowed to Him and trusted Him? He's King and it's His kingdom. And that self-denial is not an act of self-destruction for its own sake. So even in that, again, it's not just deny yourself and that's it. So it's not ultimate self-denial. It's for the sake of Christ. Why? Because Christ is there the whole time. Remember that whole phrase, everything He says, if anyone would come after Me, you're going after somebody. Yes, you're denying yourself, but you're moving for Jesus. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That whole way of life, that whole way of taking up a cross is centered around Jesus because He's the one that goes before us. He's the one that we trust in. He is our hope. And so faith renounces self-rule and casts oneself on Jesus. So we have dead hands as Christians. Yes, enjoy what God has given us. But don't grasp them. Don't clutch them. And if you are enjoying something that Jesus has explicitly spoken against, don't do that. Trust Jesus. Obey His Word. Not what your heart tells you or the culture tells you. Bow to Him. Trust Him. And then with all of our sin, we bring everything that we are to Jesus because He goes first. He dies for sin first. And on the cross, He says, we also die. And when you trust Christ, you too die to your sin so that we can rise in newness of life just like He does. He goes before us. So, will we follow Him? Will we remember His call? And the way that we remember His call every Sunday is taking communion. Reminding ourselves of of what He went through, that He went to a cross. We, we proclaim that in what we do. And we once again say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus is my King. He laid down everything for me, for us. So let's do that.
emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body.
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Please stand. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but he had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And pretty angels beheld him and came from the world of light to comfort him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. He took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with the ransom and glory His face I at last shall see T'will be my joy through the ages To sing of His love for me Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful And my song shall ever be Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful week. And there's some refreshments in the back.